What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Lindsay Hadley. Movements don't don't fit inside one brand or one organization or one individual. It's something you share. It's something that you um, amplify. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Hey, Linz, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So um, this is a fun episode for me. Um, but uh, to begin with, why don't you tell people what Hadley Impact Consulting is? Sure, yeah. Hadley Impact Consulting is my little um, one-stop shop for your social impact campaign consultancy. Um, so basically our, our team provides consulting, fundraising, management services, creative um uh, asset creation, all kinds of stuff that we can do for you for any kind of a, if you want to do a cause marketing campaign or an event, or you want to start a nonprofit, we, we have the wheelhouse to kind of help you, um, provide all of the resources, tools, and know how to do that and get something started, whether it's a tiny startup project or something really huge, we can help amplify that and help you. Yeah. Just have the most impact possible. Great. Um, we're going to have links to that on Lindsay's page on, on the website. Uh, if you come to iCollective.co and come to Lindsay's page, we'll have links to, so you can reach out to her if you're interested. But um, let's talk about um, kind of your passion and, and how you have uh, worked to change things and, and bring a lot more attention to the people who are doing good things in the world. Um, let's start with let's start with your work for Global Poverty Project. Tell us about the Global Citizen Festival and and what you did over in Australia. And let's start there. Well, thanks. I love talking about it. Thank you so much. I um, yeah, the Global Poverty Project when I when I joined them in 2011 was very very small. I think in Australia they had six employees. Uh, it was a brand new charity. Um, I think they had a handful of employees in the U.S. and a few in, in the U.K. It was really just kind of getting started. And I was uh, actually solicited to come and help produce their, their a music concert and festival on the eve of of this Commonwealth Dignitary World meeting called Chugum, which is where all the prime ministers, including the Queen of England, converge and they come to meet to talk about Commonwealth issues. So... Um, the Australian government at the time was hosting it in Perth, Australia, the most isolated city in the world. And I was asked to come and produce a concert. And um, it was really exciting because uh, it was an, an amazing opportunity to raise money and awareness for a cause that I kind of thought I had assumed was kind of done and taken care of, which was polio eradication. And so we put on this concert and we used a really unique strategy, which we can talk about a, a little bit that leveraged huge funding commitments um, and had major impact called and, and the end of polio was kind of my, my first uh, foray into working with the global poverty project as a consultant and as the executive producer of that successful event. And from there we went on to use that strategy in central park in New York city and the world's oyster and implement a lot of what we learned and, and just taking it to such a huge scale. And now it's <laughs> in its fifth year. And it's having a ton of impact. So as the, I executive produced the Global Citizen Festival the first two years. Well, I was obviously suitably impressed as I you know, flew over to, 
to Perth to wit- witness your greatness there. Um, <laughs> you know, from our from our humble days, people that know us um, will know Lindsay and I started working together in the prestigious retail sales cell phone business, <laughs> 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 like thirteen years ago, and uh, <laughs> in Southern California, a couple of young punk kids, and um, so. <laughs> You know, when you say large funding commitment, most people in charity, I'm not sure that they're going to guess that that meant raising $118 million for polio. Um, so it's been fun for me to watch your meteoric rise here. Um, <laughs> let, let's talk about end of polio for just a second before we go on, to, you know, h- hanging out with Bono and Gerard Butler and Hugh Jackman and these things. So um, $118 million for polio. Tell, tell us about what your team did to get that kind of money put together. Yeah, I'd love to tell you because it is such an innovative approach and I can shamelessly uh, promote it or, you know, shamelessly endorse it as being super smart and genius because it wasn't my idea. Um, My colleague, Wei Su, who actually hired me at the time's idea was to get polio eradication on this agenda at Chugum and, and it currently wasn't. And he knew that it was kind of low-hanging fruit, so to speak, in the development sector. So the Global Poverty Project's mission is to end extreme poverty within a generation. And they're trying to really support, you know, the framework of the Millennial Development Goals and all of the, you know, leading experts in the world who have identified how can we end extreme poverty. And, and, and the beautiful part is it's totally possible and we're doing it. The numbers drop every year and it's a really exciting story. Um, and polio is one of the most exciting, I think, in in the narrative of ending extreme poverty, because other than smallpox, we've never eradicated a disease as mankind. This is like landing on the moon type stuff, I always say. Um, but essentially, by 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 getting more commitments for polio and getting this thing um, fully funded and, and all the vaccines delivered and implemented in these places where it's still endemic, they basically can you know, shut down polio forever and eradicate it. And it's something that we can cross off. And there's not a lot of things in the nonprofit space that you can really do that. Say, oh, that's done. Checked off the list. No more resources or money need to go to that issue anymore because we solved it. It's pretty epic. So he saw that. He saw that as a win. He knew that there was bipartisan potential in the Australian government to support something like this out of the foreign aid budget. He also knew that Bill Gates had what was called the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, and he had pledged to earmark funding from the Gates Foundation to match anything that a government leader gave. Um, So he knew that it could really, really leverage anything that came out of it. So we started the advocacy directly with the Australian Prime Minister, who was then Julia Gillard. And we just basically, the group was saying, hey, look, you should give to polio eradication. You should make this... Uh, you know, a major priority on the foreign aid budget agenda. You should bring this up at Chugum. And she was very open to it in her, her cabinet, her group. And they said, you know, yeah, let's, we'd love to, but the problem is we need to, at the end of the day, we're employees of the employers who are the Australian people. And we need to demonstrate constituency. We need to, we need you to show us that Australian voters care about polio eradication because Quite frankly, it's been eradicated in Australia since the 1950s, and it's kind of a non-issue domestically. So if you can show us that Australians care, we can probably give a big commitment. So this led us to the concept of um, the first gamification strategy or campaign I was ever a part of. Historically, I had done music festivals or music concerts and festivals to raise money, and I had only relied on the profit margins of those events. So donations, sponsorship, ticket sales, merchandise, whatever that raised, you know, that was the total sum of the support to the cause. And this strategy was really different, and and Way from Global Poverty Project was the first to think of this. He thought, what if we could get Australians to sign a petition to win the concert tickets and by doing so, we get lots of petitions signed. We show that support and that public interest. And then that leverages the funding commitment from the top down from the government. Instead of asking the Australian people to open up their wallets, we ask them to just use their voice. And I thought that was genius. And I was so and, excited. Yeah. And, and how many signatures did she say she wanted before she'd give the money? You know, she didn't say an exact number, but we knew that, like, in a population of 20-something million, Australia is small, um, that, you know, any amount in the in the thousands is significant. We actually had 30,000 people sign this petition in a very short amount of time, 
And this concert was put on in, in just a few months window. It was pretty miraculous how it all came together. And uh, we, we, we brought some of the you know biggest national touring artists from the Australian uh, talent pool. And we also brought John Legend, who who we all know here in America is such a big name. And um, and we got some major celebrities to get behind it. Hugh Jackman and, and Bill Gates himself actually got behind the campaign once he saw our, the cleverness of the strategy. Um, he really believed in it. So, you know, we got MTV to live stream it and we got a lot of support locally. Um, crazy media was garnered locally and, and it worked. I mean, we made beautiful optics for the prime minister of Australia to look awesome and she loved it and she was thrilled that we could show that. So, the following morning, uh, she held a press conference after our concert, the end of polio concert, and she had uh, she made her announcement alongside the Prime Minister of Canada and UK, who came in for a little bit too. She made her $50 million contribution, and then Gates matched that, and the Canada and UK totaled $118 million, And she directly attributed it to our concert and the petition, which was just phenomenal. And I'll never forget standing in, you know, on the front row of this press conference, just thinking, I can never unlearn something this effective. I could never have raised $180 million in my wildest dreams from the profit margins of an event. This is crazy. And I just thought, this is how you do it. You leverage top-down commitments by demonstrating constituency. And this is so, so clever. So that's what we set out to do. And kind of, I've never looked back on thinking that way, thinking along those terms. Well, and, and let's talk about, you know, what you learned, um, I mean, A, it was a party. I think I was sleeping in when that announcement happened. <laughs> but but I'm glad people like you got up and went went to it. Um, you know, thinking about leveraging this, and, and so the next year you come over to New York and it's Foo Fighters and Neil Young and Black Keys and Band of Horses. And um, t- talk about I, I, what I feel like, you know, there's lots of fancy events that happen and there's lots of people that say they want to do stuff for charity. Where I feel like, the magic of Lindsay Hadley shows up is your ability to actually care what people want instead of just showing up and saying, what can I get from you? You are so interested in what people really want. And you're so generous with your whole Rolodex of trying to figure out how to get it for them, even if you have to cash in your social chips. And so the way that you have done these things where you're, you're giving this charity free airtime uh, but then they're bringing their celebrity supporter and you're getting this bank or this f- for-profit company that normally couldn't get marketing dollars to get however many uh, media impressions you got for that kind of a price tag. You're getting them actually a better marketing deal than if they just bought marketing. And like you're like this orchestra person in the middle, <laughs> li- <laughs> you know, being the glue between all these different sources. T- talk about, you know, I know your soapbox. I- I've become a believer but talk about the convener model. Yeah, thank you. I am so passionate about it. And you're so kind to say it's the magic of me. I mean, I learned this stuff from other people and kept implementing it. And like I said, you can't you can't unlearn something this effective, I feel. But you kind of nailed it on the head. You articulated the general broad strokes, which is that you got to find what is in it for everybody else. Everybody needs to win. Any mutually beneficial partnership makes sure that everyone at the table walks away with value and they're happy about the exchange. Um, but I think we know that and we, and we say that kind of stuff. And then in the nonprofit sector, when application hits the ground, we're really weird about it. Like the thing that I've noticed, um, and I do, I reiterate this a lot, but in the nonprofit sector, you know, we viciously compete for limited resources, unfortunately, and we create a culture of that competition. And it's kind of, I don't think it's anyone's intention. It was like the best hearted people ever in the nonprofit space, but it's just, but it's, it's the, that it's got a different set of rules it has to play by. Um, just a little tangent. If you've ever, ever listened, I know you're a big fan of it, Jess, you and I've talked about Dan Pelota's Ted talk. Um, mm-hmm. He talks about the charity model and how broken it is. Um, he's just really helped highlight how there's just this weird set of rules. Like in the for-profit sector, we all know that the gloves are off and you're competing for the for you know these dollars, these consumer dollars. But in the nonprofit sector, we're supposed to all if you if you're about clean water in Africa, you're supposed to make the people in Africa the most important thing and getting them clean water. But what ends up happening is your organization needs to find its overhead, it needs to get its programs, it needs to win. And you compete for the other people trying to do the same thing instead of collaborate. And they and charities try to work together, and they kind of can't. It's like, it's like they can't. It's it's too juxtaposing and painful and too limited. And so, what the convener model really is is it requires kind of a third party or a charity who can think like a third party 
and come in and kind of create a meta campaign or create an auspice umbrella that everyone can fit under and win by creating value that everyone else can have. So I could give you example, example after example, and you kind of touched on it with the Global Citizen Festival, but the Global Citizen Festival is a fantastic example because they used their funding and their social cachet and their relationships in the entertainment and music and industry. And as the executive producer, we were fortunate enough to bring my beautiful friend, Bill Fold and his team from AEG and um, Golden Voice on. Um, they're the guys who, who started Coachella, um, the most successful music festival in history. And they came on and, you know, with that, with their help and the help of a lot of amazing human beings, we, pulled this miracle off. And the thing about Central Park that was so special is bands can't just play there. It's It costs $7 million to put on a concert and to shut down a third of NYPD to basically build an infrastructure in the most craziest city in the world. I mean, and we did it during the United Nations General Assembly meeting, which is just like the most heightened time for all this, which was just poignant because everyone was in town making huge decisions that will impact the poor. But we used this platform we funded this thing. We brought in all of the sponsors. We underwrote it. We gave away these tickets and incentivized people to take actions on a platform using the technology of our generation to, to win these concert tickets. And what we did is we gave the stage time and the leveraging of all of this value of, of people, 60,000 people winning tickets to the concert. We, and it's well, well over 60,000 every year now because they're all trying to win the concert tickets that you can't buy. Um, their actions are supporting the big charities that are doing the work on the ground. So we were able to go and basically provide value to every single major player like World Vision and UNICEF and the World Health Organization. And we were able to go to these big organizations and say, do you want, you know, stage time in front of 60,000 people live in Central Park and live broadcasted to 20 plus million and by the way, we'll get, we'll get tens of thousands of people to do whatever you want them to do. Sign a petition, share your video, like your Facebook. And of course, these big charities are like, yes, we'll do that. <laughs> well, I remember when we talked about this, you're out, you're out trying to raise millions of dollars so that you guys could pay for the concert so that Pencils of Promise or whoever doesn't have to come up with that money. And yes. I remember you telling me about, Jess, we go to these meetings and people would be like, well, what do you want from us? You know, like they're so skeptical. It was such a rare, exactly. It, it, it's consistently like, wait, this is such a rare approach and strategy in the nonprofit sector, but it works so beautifully because what, what ends up happening is we ended up all espousing the same messaging and content at the same time. We talk about this major event. We talk about the brand global citizen, which is bigger than all of us. We all fit under that umbrella. Um, and we give that time and that leveraging point as a convener and it makes that meta campaign um, bigger than all of the sum of all the, all of its parts, right? And each of us win. We won out of it. We have bigger traction, bigger engagement. And these charities, you know, got their, like, for example, UNICEF brought Selena Gopez the, the first year who has 50 million social media followers. And they got her to push that blaster social media following and say, you know, um, check out this festival, make sure you take actions on behalf of UNICEF. And they were willing to do that because they got behind us because we got behind them. And so as you think in the nonprofit sector about creating movements, you, when you think about it, movements don't, don't fit inside one brand or one organization or one individual. It, it's something you share. It's something that you um, amplify. And these concerts and these campaigns are just kind of these flash pan moments in a broader experience. But the strategy of making sure everyone at the table is winning um, it's hard and it takes innovation and it takes creativity and it takes a willingness to set aside short-term wins to have long-term impact. And it's just pretty cool. And I, I found it actually has short, more powerful short-term impact actually than the traditional charity model that you see. Yeah. Uh, I having, having seen it in person, I agree. Um, let's go back a little bit. Um, thinking about where some of this strategy came from, you know, um, after uh, after your soccer scholarships for for school and getting into the workforce, coming to going to work for YouthLink and actually going to Kenya and going to these places where you got to go be on the ground and see it in action, um, what what kind of an effect do you feel like that had on you, being in person? I love that you. This is such a fun interview because you know me so well. You've known me since I was a kid, um, but you're so cute. Um, and uh, I wish I could talk about all the things you accomplished sometime. Let's do that. Let's turn it around. <laughs> <'Cause>, 
Well, it's only fair if you also talk about all my failures, which you're acutely aware of. But I, uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of traveling around the world and and having, you know, the the beautiful opportunity to see, um, to see the world as a global citizen and to be on the ground building, you know, wells and schools and libraries and orphanages and and actually working with villages in some instances where people, you know, had never even seen white people. I mean, just so remote and having these amazing experiences and understanding uh, and making mistakes and understanding, you know, what, what impact we have on these people and can have um, for the good or for bad. Um, one of the things that I learned was, you know, there's a, there, there's, you know, there's a real, you know, sensitivity and it's important to have that we, we can come in with the best intentions and sometimes we can cause harm um, some, most of the time we do well, but just, just being more cautious and learning and understanding and not trying to reinvent stuff, not recreate the will. Everyone says that, but again, charities kind of struggle at doing that and they don't come in. And if you look at some of the best models uh, I, that I've been inspired by, for example, um, charity water, it's one of the most inspiring nonprofits I've seen in a long time. They came in and instead of going in and redoing water implementation projects on the ground everywhere they partnered they became the meta charity they became the fundraising and pr beast and specialized in branding and specialized in engagement and just created the coolest brand around helping people get clean water and then they funneled that money to uh the organizations who already were killing it they identified the best of class and they started to support them and and amplify and you know and um and, and and exponentially grow their their efforts instead of and let them be the best of what they do which was which was branding and pr and storytelling and and enrolling people you know so i think like that's one thing i learned is there's a lot of little charities that go in these places and i think there's a ton of room for it's not too little charities are the ones who make them up i mean they're the, they're like the daily life blood to the those living in extreme poverty, I, they're, they're the heroes, the unsung heroes too. But if there's any way that if somebody ever is looking at it and they're like, I want to start, or they've already got a charity that's well in the works, like how can we start to think more collaboratively and see what's working and support it and kind of find a way to make it still work for us. But there are ways to like, kind of get over ourselves a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of cool examples of this. You, I've seen it on basic community levels, with refugee resettlement programs to massive global scale organizations. But the more and more we think like this, it's, uh, it's pretty profound. I'd love to give you a little example of the, of the refugee, just because it's something so micro, but so powerful that I think everyone will understand what I'm saying. Sure, sure. Um, my little sister was a, re- a job developer for in Utah for refugees. And um, she worked for the, for a particular agency and they are great. They do, they do great work. They help get, um, they help refugees find jobs. And there's a couple other, I guess you could say parallel or competitive agencies in Utah that are also doing it. And they all kind of do their own thing, siloed, try to, they get their, their refugees assigned to them and those case studies and, or those cases. And then they try to get those individuals jobs. My little sister worked out this amazing deal with Walmart where she just went in and she was able to, she, she did great work. She did an excellent job at what she does. And she was able to convince Walmart to hire 50 refugees, which was unprecedented in Utah. And she thought in this convener mindset, she thought in this other centric way. And she thought, I want what's best for refugees long-term, not what's best for my particular agency in the short term. And so what she did is she went to all the other competitive agencies and said, look, let's, let's, let's do something totally innovative. I've got these 50 jobs. And normally I would have just given to my 50 caseworkers in my agency's book, not, and I wouldn't even consider thinking of you guys because it would have just been a win for us, but let's do this. Let's actually create a panel and for all of us. And then we'll, we'll not know who the refugees are that are coming in that we interview. We won't know from which agency they're from and we'll choose the best refugees full stop. It doesn't matter whose agency they're from. Let's find the best refugees so that Walmart gets the best potential employees, thereby, you know, incentivizing Walmart to keep doing this. And her model was just so effective that just hundreds and hundreds of refugees have seen jobs now over the years because she thought that way. And it was the first person to ever think that way in the whole sector and especially in Utah. So I just love that, you know, this, this is the way that like we have to start thinking in the nonprofit sector. And I think consultancies like Hadley Impact and 
and groups that um, that kind of are thinking out of the box like this are going to be the ones who really help make innovate some of the some of the most powerful ways we can support the already the heroes doing the work on the ground. Yeah, you know, um, another thing that I think is fun about what you do is, I think we both have a lot of frustrations with the 501c3 model here in the US, the nonprofits, uh, for a lot of the reasons that Dan Pelota brought up. And so I think, you know, someone could do the decades of work to try and change public opinion, or you could just skip that step and do for-profit businesses that help the world, um, yeah. which I feel like Hadley Impact is. And, and, uh, and then you went and did, so, you know, you have this, <laughs> for people that know you, um, everybody's amazed with your, with your crazy Rolodex and how Larry King will throw fundraisers for you at his house and all, you know, all these things. And then you up and decide to be a tech entrepreneur <laughs> and start a tech company and, uh, and invent time machine. And which is now, you know, obviously you guys did your big concert with Imagine Dragons and now you've got people white labeling it to, um, so it can be, you know, an engagement campaign for their business. Uh, t tell everybody what time machine is. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, it was uh, it it was such a it, uh, such a huge learning curve for me because I'd never really done anything in tech, and I'd never like personally the Global Citizen and even the End of Polio concert, and um, we had tech components, but I wasn't really over that at all. I just produced the event, made sure we raised the money, the sponsorship, got all the celebrities out on music and and stuff like that, put a really high level involvement so we always had really talented people work on the tech side um and so you know i'd seen it work so well though building platforms that could you know gamify the gamify and incentivize the the engagement of people so they could earn points and then redeem them for rewards and you look at like the kickstarters of the world and there's milestones and they have these little ecosystems where you can you know create your own campaign and provide rewards for people for you know, giving so much money or whatever. It's such a, it's such a fantastic utility. And I wanted to see it available to uh, all the different charitable causes, not just poverty, which global citizen has created. Um, and, and we innovated, we did things differently than global citizen. Of course it was just, and, and actually the, when I first came, um, heard about it, my partners came to me, they had never even heard of global citizen. So there's a lot of really great gamification platforms out there starting all around all around the world. Um, and there's some great examples of people doing incentivized engagement. I'll give an, I'll give a couple of high level ones, but free the children, which is out of Canada, huge successful charity. And they do like, you know, do so many hours of service to win a concert ticket. And then they throw these huge concerts, rock the court, uh, rock corps, I think it's called out of the UK, same thing, volunteer hours in exchange for, but I wanted to create it so that like small everyday charities that don't have giant budgets to go create tech platforms and become tech companies essentially could utilize this. So we built Time Machine and it's just a it's a campaign management tool where you can go and curate your own um, campaigns, come up with a prize locker, give a to do list and challenges of what you want people to do um, and, and asking people to support. Think of it like Kickstarter, but instead of your money it's asking for people's time to do things and these could be ice bucket challenge-esque type things things that's done in solidarity take a video take a photo doing xyz check in at our event share our our video or share our, uh, this website link so it's pre-produced content going out and then it tracks it all and gamifies it and give rewards relative to that you know that strategy well, you leverage and and i love the trackability i mean there's a lot of people with good ideas out there but I mean, besides being very visually appealing, it, it's fun for the participant and you guys with all the social check-ins and all that, that aspect of it. Um, I mean, my mother-in-law thought it was fun to like try and check all these things off the list. And, and some of them were, didn't have much to do with the charity. It was like, take a photo of something in nature that inspires you. Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and some of them were more direct stuff. And it's kind of like she kind of got on a roll because she started doing some of them. And then she thought she'd do more of them, you know? She was so sweet. It's so fun to see the content coming out. I mean, essentially, you're creating brand ambassadors. So, you know, I mean, look at the Ice Bucket Challenge. I mean, I know that was just an absolute outlier. But, you know, pouring Ice Bucket water on your head had nothing to do with ALS. It just was a really clever social strategy of, like, do something in behalf of, and it was so viral and successful, but like we, yeah, you could, you could have it be anything, but just 
everyone's, you know, producing content online, why not leverage it and turn it into um, cause related ambassadorship or brand related ambassadorship for that matter. Um, I look at like, you know, people we've looked like Costa Vida, for example, which is a, like a Chipotle equivalent, but based out of Utah, awesome restaurant that fast, casual Mexican dining food. And they supported the Imagine Dragons fundraiser, the campaign for kids with, um, with pediatric cancer. And what they did is they had like, you know, come into our store and be a good human being. This is one of the challenges. It was really cute. Be a good human being and buy the person behind you a bean burrito for free, you know, just like buy them a meal and then take a selfie with you and your new friend. And like, how fun is that? Like total stranger, good Samaritan, like, you know, here's a meal on me. And then what's cool is that that went out onto social media, your social media page and you're doing something kind. Because they logged in with Facebook or whatever in the app. Yeah. Through the app, exactly. It goes out. They're entered into win a chance to meet Imagine Dragons and go to their sold-out concert. And Costa Vida gives them a free meal for doing it. And Costa Vida gets the hashtag Costa Cares as it goes out with this really cool, you know, con- this amazing content that's so much more enriching than just traditional media impressions. And everybody's winning in that scenario. And so we're turning, like, cause marketing into and something that would be probably transactional and private more viral because it's all going out through social media through these tools and technology is just so powerful today. So we now the time machine platform is really, we're just white labeling it for people. So people, charities, influencers, companies, even governments are wanting, uh, we've got cities and governments wanting to white label it and then incentivize their communities to do the things they want them to do. And so that's what we're currently doing now. It's it's, We're really excited. We've got one launching this, uh, this month in April um, on April 6th the, for the Utah Refugee um, Center. So it's going to be called um, Serve Refugees, and it'll be in the App Store. And you can do a bunch of stuff and earn cool rewards for supporting refugees from, you know, the comfort from behind your screen. <laughs> in your okay. We're, we'll put a link to that. It's timemachine.do, and we'll put the link for the App Store and stuff on Lindsay's page on iCollective.co. Um, by the way, did uh, did that country over in Asia... <laughs> go for it are we allowed to yeah. talk about that yeah yeah it's you know we're in the middle of still negotiating but i can mention it it's, ca- the, it's so random but kazakhstan it's like other than borat has ever and has anyone <laughs> had too much to do with kazakhstan <laughs> other than my my dad steve smoot who's been doing business there for 20 years um anyway we went over there and they've got a big expo coming up and they're white labeling the app for their expo um so they want people to take actions and, you know, enjoy the city while they're in town. And it's all for, it's all for, um, energy conservation and stuff. So it's really neat. Like the tool just can be utilized in a lot of different ways. And so it's something that I'm thrilled we built and we're, and we're really excited to keep seeing it get out into the hands of people that can leverage it in a really powerful way. That's fun. Um, so, you know, on the show, um, we have a couple of standard questions. The first one is um, any books that you would recommend for entrepreneurs or, or uh, innovators out there? Man, there's so many good books. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you've already mentioned this one, but my favorite book of all time is Bonds That, that Make Us Free. By <laughs> <Kirk>. <laughs> You're it's saying that to butter me up. Yeah. And no, and you, you're the one who introduced me to that book and it's just genius and life-changing. Um, just because it gets to the heart of like how we are with people in our core and that dictates behavior instead of focusing on a lot of behavior, which a lot of these books, you know, put their emphasis on do this, do that. This gets into your heart being changed, which then your behavior follows suit. So it's really great and it's genius. Um, another really cool book, and I have the privilege to get to know him and consider him a friend, but um, because he's just been so lovely to me all the times I've ever interacted with him. But Tony Shea, uh, mm. the founder and CEO of Zappos, wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. And it's just his journey of building Zappos and creating this phenomenal company culture. But for whatever reason, the way he tells it in this unassuming manner and talks through the innovation of focusing on culture more than anything else, Zappos is just a company I deeply admire. Their their values um, are, are so core to who they are. It's like it takes precedent over everything else. And as a result, I'm a huge fan and customer of theirs. So that's a really great that's a great book too. I recommend. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, it's funny. I, you know, having your friend 
Amanda Slavin, when you, when you got me into their catalyst week for the downtown project, you know, I didn't think we were actually going to get to go hang out with Tony. And, um, it's interesting meeting him in person. He is so unassuming. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not an act for the book. Like he's like, I don't know. He just doesn't walk around thinking he's a big deal. Yeah. He's real. He's really, it's cool. It's a cool thing. They've created a cool environment and I mean, just what Zappos does. I mean, just reading what they do in this book that's different, that sets them apart. You just wish every business thought like this. Well, the world would be so cool. So that's a, that's a really great mm-hmm. book, too. Um, yeah, I think there's... Okay. We'll put, yeah, the, we'll put those links up. And... so many good books. Like, you, I just feel like you probably would have talked about them all by now. But, like, <laughs> so many good ones. <laughs> okay. Well, you can email me a list. We'll put them up. Um <laughs> So I'm, I'm thinking about all these people, you know, whether it's Katie Holmes and Olivia Wilde and Bono and the head of the World Bank or, or the head of the United Nations that, that you've interacted with in these, these collaborative things that you've done. Um, but w- one couple that really stands out to me is, is a couple you've been raving about for years was Hugh Jackman and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness. And um, I, I think it's only fitting now that they're a client of Hadley Impact with, with Hopeland and what they're doing. Um, but I remember how much you were like, no, Jess, he's like, like, it's not an act. He's like sincerely a good person. Like I, I love these people. And then when you got me into that dinner, the global poverty project event, the dinner over at their home, uh, and there was, you know, all these different celebrities and, um, and a bunch of them were maybe not as awesome to meet in person. And then you hang out with, with those two and they're just like, they're so sincere. And she, you know, Deb was just talking about like all these like things about being a mom that are like hilarious, but not necessarily flattering about herself, you know? And I'm like sitting next to Tyra Banks, billionaire boyfriend and Hugh Jackman sitting next to me and is like just as nice to me as the guy who can give an enormous donation, you know? And just like, uh, Anyways, talk talk to me about um, what what it is that impresses you so much about them. You know, I, I mean, I I feel like the world has stared at the Jackmans and, and their and them as a brand as a couple, and just been enamored and been in awe of how how gracious, humble, good, talented, just shiny they are. You know, and everybody loves them. And and like you and like you said, I I mean, I I'm thinking, you know working intimately with them, you'll, you'll see that, you know, they're just human. And of course they are, but like, I, they're kind of superhuman to me. And the more <laughs> I've got to know them, the more I just adore them as people. I mean, they are so good and they do exactly what you said. They treat everyone the same. I've watched them be as doting and as sweet to the chauffeur that's driving them around um, as the prime minister president of a country. I've seen them have the same decorum and kindness and concern um, to a volunteer, you know, um, or taxi cab driver as they would to a billionaire or CEO. I mean, they're just really good people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's Deb that I've really gotten to work with. She's actually the one who started, um, Hopeland, which is this amazing initiative supporting orphans getting into permanent families. It's all about adoption. The Jackmans adopted their two beautiful children. Um, and it's a really, yeah, she, yeah she told me how hard it was though. So hard. And that, that's where they kind of, this is where the journey began for them and for Deb and her work with adoption. And of course, Hugh has been hugely supportive of her work, but this is really Deb's, Deb's baby and show. She's just phenomenal woman. She's, she's, I mean, in some ways, as Hugh says, she's even like his better half. She's such a, such a dynamite um, personality and so good, such a force for good. But um, what they do, (laughs) she's kind of a force of nature though. Like seeing them interact, like you expect, like, that Hugh Jackman is the star and he's going to wear the pants in the family. And, you know, <laughs> she's like a go-getter. She is the star. She's amazing. Um, but she, she, oh, and she's such a good mom too. I admire her so much for her, her priority of motherhood, but um, she wanted children and they both, Deb, Deb and Hugh, you know, they tried to adopt an Australian. It was near impossible. And fortunately for them, they had green cards and, Deb was actually a very, very, very successful actress in her own right. Um, and she had been to the U S and was doing work. And so they were able to come here and adopt. And when they kind of, whenever they'd come back to Australia, they were like the face of like adoption because people were like, you got to adopt. You're so lucky. How did you do that? You know? 
And she found herself talking about adoption, which was kind of like this dirty word in Australia, basically in the aftermath of what they call the stolen generation, which was these Aboriginal children were forced out of the ho their homes into fit white families to be Christianized and modernized. You know, we, we did a similar thing, unfortunately, historically in America with Native Americans. And, you know, at, rightfully so, there was this giant backlash against that kind of injustice and, un and unhappiness and devastation. And so they made a lot of policies that made it impossible to take these kids from their parents and adopt them out. But what in doing so polarized it so much that it made it impossible just to adopt at all. So it became really bureaucratic, really broken and impossible to get kids adopted. So the foster care system was just bloated and people couldn't find permanent loving families. It was just terrible. And Deb saw this and started talking about what is going on. And she's seen, she was traveling around the world, um, as an ambassador for her and her and Hugh for world vision. And she was seeing these orphans all over the world and going, this is, there's tons of orphans. And yet I'm meeting Australians every day who want to adopt. And I'm just trying to understand because there's, there's plenty, the demand, the supply and demand is not the issue here. She could easily see it was just like the bureaucracy in the middle. So she started campaigning, created the adoption awareness week and adopt change, which is this really great charity out of Australia and eventually led to some major policy reform in Australia um, under the prime minister, Tony Abbott. And, um, he directly, he directly attributed it to her efforts and actually gave her an award and brought her to their equivalent of the white house, Kilbury house. And they had the Jackmans there and Hughes shares that it's like the greatest accomplishment of, of his family's life. Like he's more proud of that moment than anything he's accomplished in entertainment, which is really sweet. Um, and so they're now setting out to do that on a global stage with Hopeland and we're launching this year, um, publicly, and we've got some really cool campaigns. If you go to our Hopeland, so O-U-R, hopeland.org, you can actually sign up right now, kind of like a pre-register, sign the Declaration of Dependence. And the whole concept's behind, and this is, we helped incubate, we got started, we got, you know, built, helped build their board and get their CEO and, and raise money and seed money, build up strategy. And we're helping right now get sponsors and raise money to, to execute this fun campaign. But we're going to Basically, you'll be able to, you know, sign up this Declaration of Dependence instead of an independence because Hopeland's a new country where 150 million orphans globally are imagine we're creatively imagining them in one country, and like we need to opt in as citizens and we need to support these kids because we're their parents as as a global community since they don't have parents. So we have like a we're you know we're going to do a flag campaign and a national anthem we're creating. Um, and we're going to have an empty seat at the United Nations, you know, um, which is a really cool concept of think of like just getting that awareness about these orphans and the concept of getting them into adopt, getting adoption as a priority is a new thing. Like surprisingly, that's usually not the first place that people providing orphan services start. They just, they're starting with the temporal needs. And so this kind of meta campaign, this convener model that Deb's creating is going to be a really powerful force for for helping get kids into permanent loving families, which is definitely the solution for the, for the orphan crisis. You know, I think about the statistic you told me about when you told me that they're going to get a seat at the United Nations, like they are a country. Yeah. And do you, do you remember the number? I can't remember what number you told me. Like if you added up all the orphans in the world, it'd be the, how many, how big it's oh, seventh largest country in the world. If we put them all in one place. Yeah. It's that, pretty awesome. that, that right there, I feel like is like a, something tangible from a marketing perspective that people sink their teeth into when I tell them about what you're doing. And all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have anything to relate it to. That's enormous, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's really cool, but it's fun because they're, they're, they're going to use their uh, profile and their relationships in entertainment and in Hollywood and all over to get people to support kids getting in permanent families. And they're going to, they're going to be the big convener. They're going to create the meta narrative behind all the groups that do great work getting kids adopted. And there's a lot of really successful programs and strategies that are working that just would just blow your mind, but they're going to identify them and help support them and get, and get this, get this story out there. Because honestly, before I really met the Jackmans and got to know about Deb's work with Hopeland, I, I just didn't realize like, I always thought there are orphans because there aren't enough people who want to take them. I didn't realize that that's not the case at all. That really it's a matter of like us kind of not having systems to get them into those families that would take them and soak them up in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. You know, um, I think uh, another thing that I, I've always been interested with your ability to mix and match people who 
maybe wouldn't nor- normally be associated together. Like I think about a couple of the years, like the global fest citizen festival where you've got, you've got Alicia Keys, John Mayer, you know, Kings of Leon and Stevie wonder, or like, you know, you've got Jay-Z and the roots for the third year and no doubt. And this, this mix, um, I know you've got an event coming up where you've got, you know, you've got people like Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning and then, and, and Oscar De La Hoya and Mitt Romney. <laughs> tell us, tell us about your, uh, tell us about your mashup here with the charity vision. Oh, I'm so excited about this event. Yeah. It's just, it's this, it's this, it's coming up here this um, summer in Salt Lake and it's uh charity vision is the neatest charity. I'm so surprised it's not household brand yet. And we're going to try to help it become that in the next little while, but coolest, most powerful metric I've ever seen in terms of a do- donor dollar for $30, you can get a kid or a person in the th- in third world country site. You can give them site for $30. Basically, Cataract surgery is incredibly affordable, especially in country. If you have trained by Charity Visions, you know, incredible um, program. Um, basically, they teach these surgeons how to do this cataract surgery. And then for 30 bucks, these individuals are given the gift of sight. Can you believe for 30 bucks? I mean, that is what, like one night to the movies, dinner and movies, like 30 bucks you can give, you can change someone's life. Like that is so crazy. And that brings people out of, generations of poverty when you solve a disability like like blindness it's just so cool and so i mean and they have no overhead this charity has been ran for years and they've done amazing work you can check them out but the romneys caught caught wind of charity vision and just fell in love with it so mitt has gotten huge behind it and last year they did the funnest event it's called fight night and mitt romney actually boxed um he, Evander Holyfield and didn't he, that go on Jimmy Fallon? It did. Jimmy he then he talked about it on Jimmy Fallon when when it went on and they're buddies with Jimmy and so this year they've got Mario Lopez like uh, Slater from <laughs> from uh, Saved by, by the Bell. Good old Mario Lopez is going to MC it and they've got all these great athletes and Oscar De La Hoya and Mitt and it's it's going to be an amazing event but we're going to do a, a crowdsourcing campaign which we'll also make sure the link is on this interview too for you Jess. But we're going to do, you know, you can donate 30 bucks, give someone sight, but also be entered in a chance to come and be a part of this night. It's $2,500 a ticket to attend. It's really the who's who of Salt Lake and all this and lots of cool celebrities and fun things are going to be happening that night. But you'll get a chance to win that and meet all of the celebrities that night. So I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And I I just think that um, what Charity Vision is doing just needs to be heard by so many people because it's something that a high school kid could support. It's just like one birthday present, one Christmas present. Like I'm telling everyone for now on to donate to Charity Vision. (laughs) um, That's fun. You know, not everybody loves Kobe, but I was living in LA during the Kobe shack years when they were winning. So so (laughs) I'm all about meeting Kobe. Um, So, um, you know, usually on the show we have the standard, um, question, you know, for people of, of what advice they would give us at child rescue to try and get more people involved in preventing child sex trafficking and rescuing the kids that are already there. Um, this is kind of a fun episode since you used to run child rescue for us. Can you talk about, um, why you decided to get involved and, and what you feel like the possibilities are for this issue? For child rescue, yeah. Oh, I I so, so so passionate about this cause. I've worked with a lot of different causes, and I've always said I can't think of anything more horrific than child sex trafficking. I just, I mean, there's a lot of bad that happens, and a lot of good that happens in the world. But of all the tragedies, I can't I can't think of anything more just sickeningly just heart wrenching. And everybody feels that way about it when they learn about it. Um, but essentially, you know, the work you're doing with child rescue is just phenomenal that actually going in, especially now where you're going in, I mean, in the early days we were training police officers, which was hugely needed, you know, still such a new topic, such a new issue. I remember we did, we had that amazing training in Salt Lake where we, we trained over 500 police officers, FBI um, agents and, and FBI law. agents. That was so cool. We did a lot of great work, uh, helping support that and just the awareness. I mean, because prior to child rescue, I was a lot like the rest of the public where I thought prostitution was this victimless crime. I just thought, you know, these individuals selling themselves for sex, that was just, yeah, they're broken. They've probably had hard lives. Nobody chooses that like for fun, but it, but I definitely thought, you know, it's something kind of too complex to solve. But when I realized how much, uh, 
how much of it is preventable and how much of it is not by choice. And these kids are systematically um, victimized and coerced and raped. I mean, essentially for money and just realizing the whole sex industry, um, the, the porn industry, just entertainment, just realizing how much of a slippery slope that whole world is and painful and, and wanting to just do something. Um, I love that child rescues, you know, got this emphasis amongst young people to try to take a stand and then working with law enforcement and special forces groups to go in and actually save kids is just, I mean, what a cool, cool thing to be a part of. And you've got some new programs that you're doing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about those where you've got? <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, the, the, the listeners know, I keep talking about the aftercare orphanage we're building in Peru right now. And, um, for, for people just as a timeline to understand that, you know, after your, after your days at YouthLink and what we didn't talk about was you winning that global rotary award at YouthLink for the, the concert you threw with Ben Folds. Um, and really how that was the catalyst of, you know, we had a bunch of good intentions for what Child Rescue could become seven years ago when we started talking to you. And, and really it might still be good intentions if you hadn't have said, if you hadn't have stepped in and said, well, hey, um, you know, Jess, I know, I know you really care about this, but you know, maybe, uh, do you, do you want me to help a bit with this one little part, which turned into you throwing a huge festival with 20 bands, like 311 and third eye blind and dashboard confessional and neon trees and getting billionaire Sumner Redstone involved. And, and really, you know, for people that don't know, Lindsay Hadley plus one part-time employee and 200 volunteers that she recruited is essentially (laughs) the reason that we had this huge, you know, concert thousands of people came to and, and launched us into existence. So we, we owe you big for that. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes. So we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes. And to learn more about Child Rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our Child Rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.